Job chapter 9. We are working our way through Job. And like I said, I wanted to be finished Job by December so we can be in time for our Christmas messages. Uh, so we got a lot of ground to cover. <laughs> we will get there, I promise you. Job chapter 9. Is everyone there? I'm going to read for us today from Job chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 18 through 20 and then verses 32 and 33. 18 through 20 and verses 32 and 33. It reads, he will not allow me to catch my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a matter of strength, indeed, he is strong. And if of justice, who will appoint my day in court? Though I were righteous, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I were blameless, it would prove me perverse. Verse 32. For he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, and that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Let us pray. Father, it's again that we come into your presence. We come today on this communion Sunday uh, to give you praise and honor and glory, um, but also to participate in uh, Holy Communion, showing that uh, we are in covenant with you because you said that this is the new covenant in your blood. We come today to thank you that you came on our behalf and that you are the mediator between God and man. And because you are God yourself, you were able to forgive our sin. And because you are also a human being like us, you could offer yourself as a perfect sacrifice for our sin. We pray today, Lord, as we look at uh, Job's circumstance, as he has, uh, has expressed this desire of wanting a mediator, but knowing there was no one that could stand in between him and God, we thank you that more than 4,000 years after the time of Job, we can celebrate that there is a mediator, someone who is God and man that can pr bring peace, between wretched sinners and a holy God. We thank you today for uh, being that sacrifice, for being that mediator, and we honor you for that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We live in a litigious society. Lawyers make hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars, fighting lawsuits oftentimes frivolous lawsuits. But because we live in a litigious society, <laughs> um, lawsuits abound. As a matter of fact, there are commercials that just start off. Do you need a lawyer? 
right? Uh, it doesn't really matter what the issue is, but they, they, they've run commercials on TV to attract people to call them in hopes of winning money in a lawsuit because our society sues for everything. There are so many lawsuits that I could name. I was thinking of someone, I remember someone uh, talking about McDonald's and uh, they were explaining why on the cup of coffee from McDonald's it says, caution, contents are hot. Uh, and apparently there was someone who did not know that hot coffee is hot and uh, they spilled coffee on themselves and burned themselves and sued McDonald's for not telling them that their hot coffee was hot. I heard a story of someone who sued a department store and they were in the department store and they were uh, doing some shopping and, and they tripped and fell over a child and broke their leg. They sued the department store because the department store did not stop the parent and say, you need to get control of your child. The twist to the story is the child belonged to the person who fell and broke her leg. But she sued and she won. Lawsuits <laughs> in America abound. <laughs> it's kind of like what Paul said, with sin abounds, <laughs> right? Right, a lawsuit's <laughs> much more abound, okay? But here in the story of Job, Job has gotten to this point with God. Job has, has, has struggled with the pain that he has been feeling throughout the story, and, and now he desires to take God to court. Job started off being strong in his faith, and, and when he first was tested, when he lost his, all of his possessions and all of his children, he was able to still fall down and worship God. He stood firm in faith. And then we see that, that sometime later, Job himself is stricken with some form of sickness, some form of disease. He had boils from the, from the sole of his feet to the, the top of his head. And, and, and he went through all of these things. And yet when his wife said, why don't you just curse God and die? He said, should we not receive good from God and also adversity? He was still standing firm in his faith. Now we don't know how much time uh, passed from all of these events, but some time probably passed. And now Job is here uh, talking with his friends, and, and his friends are trying to convince him that he must have sinned, he must have done something wrong, because God only blesses those people who are righteous, and he only punishes those people who have sinned. And Job begins to wrestle with his faith. Job is, is, is vacillating now between trusting in God and holding firm in his faith in God and, and believing that God is somehow being unrighteous or being unjust towards him. That, that he, 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 he moves back and forth between the position of, 
of trusting God and believing that God is punishing him unfairly. And now Job comes to this point where he thinks it would be a good idea to take God to court. Again, I will read verse 19 of chapter 9. It reads, if it is a matter of strength, indeed he is strong. And if of justice, who will appoint my day in court? And then he says in verse 33, that there is no mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Job wants to take God to court because he feels that there is no more recourse for justifying himself. Now, before we move on, I want us to look at back in James chapter 1. James chapter 1. We should all be able to quote the entire book of James at this point. We spent so much time in James. James chapter 1. Is everyone there? You will remember James chapter (laughs) 1. I know we spent at least four Sundays (laughs) in James chapter 1. Listen to what he says in verse 2. And I believe that James chapter 1 is a great example of what Job was experiencing. And I think it is also a great example of what we often experience when we face trials and temptation and suffering. James says, verse 2, chapter 1, verse 2, My brethren... Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, I think that this is what we see uh, in Job's life and what we will continue to see with Job uh, throughout the rest of the book until he meets God in the whirlwind. Job is is firm. He's trusting God. God is righteous. God is good. God will never make a mistake. And then he's over. God is being unfair. He set me up as a target. He's punishing me. And back and forth, he vacillates on this viewpoint. Is God faithful or is God unrighteous? Is God good or is God being unfair? Job is this double-minded man who's unstable. He, he wants to trust God, but he isn't really sure that God is on his side. Job, I mean, James tells us that we have to allow patience to do its work. And as patience does its work, we become 
perfect and complete, lacking nothing. But we must stand in faith. Because if we don't stand in faith, if we're vacillating back and forth between trusting God and wondering if God is fair or righteous or or mistreating us, God is not going to answer us. So here we see, if we look back in the book of Job, Job is questioning God, and he feels that God is not answering. And oftentimes, God doesn't answer us when we're being tested. <coughs> it's kind of like when you're in school, and you say, this is a breeze. I, I know all of this. Okay, put away all your books. It's going to be a test. Well, can't I just keep on? No, put everything away. We're going to test you. See, God, does, God is not speaking to Job. And so because Job is not hearing God, Job is vacillating back and forth. And Job thinks now that taking God to court, that if he could just get God on the witness stand under oath, somehow he could get the truth out of God. Job wants to go to court with God in order to bring reconciliation between them, but he is hesitant because he knows he cannot prevail against God. Job, three things here that Job says he wants to go to court against God, but he knows that he would fail. Number one, in verses 1 through 13, he says that he could not prove his innocence because God is too wise and God is too strong. Listen to what he says in verse 1. He says, Then Job answered and said, Truly, I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous before God? If one wished to contend with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. So if, if God deposed Job for court, he wouldn't be able to answer God one time out of a thousand questions. He says, verse 4, God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and prospered? He removes the mountains and they do not know. When he overturns them in his anger, he shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. He commands the sun and it does not rise. He seals off the stars. He alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Job says, I want to go to court with God, but God is too wise for me, and God is too strong for me, so I know that if we were in court together, I would not prevail. Number two, in verses 14 through 20, Job says he would want to go to court with God, but he knows that his own speech would condemn him before God. Verse 14, how then can I answer him? And choose my words to reason with him. For though I were righteous, I could not answer him. I would beg mercy of my judge. If I called and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with the tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to catch my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it, if it is a matter of strength, indeed he is strong. And if of justice, who will appoint my day in court? Though I were righteous, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I were blameless, it would prove me perverse. Job 
even if he had an opportunity to get on the witness stand and tell his own side, Job knows that his own speech is not holy enough to prevail against God. My own words would betray me. My own speech would show that I'm not blameless. Number three, Job wants to take God to court, but he fears he would not prevail against God because God seems unfair because he treats the righteous and the unrighteous the same. Look at verse 21 through 24. He says, I am blameless, yet I do not know myself. I despise my life. It is all one thing. Therefore, I say he destroys the wicked and the blameless. If the scourge slays suddenly, he laughs at the plight of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who else could it be? I don't even know if God is fair. God treats the righteous and the unrighteous the same. He punishes those who do what's right and those who sin equally. And when the ungodly do things to harm those who are righteous, God covers the faces of the judges, and they don't even judge properly. And if God is not the one who's doing it, who is doing it? I don't think that God is going to even be fair if I was even to get in court with him. Job desires to take God to court, but because of these reasons, he feels that he would not even prevail against God in court. So at this point, Job has one and only one hope left. Job has a hope that there would be a mediator, someone who is able to understand both parties and act as an arbitrator between the two of them. I if there was a mediator, an arbitrator, a referee, an umpire, somebody that could stand in between me and God, that could understand God's position, and that could understand my position, and bring peace between the two of us. Oh, if someone like that existed, then maybe I could prevail against God. Maybe I could be reconciled back to God. He could know that I'm not sinful, and, and we could be at peace together again. But no one like that exists. And just as quickly as Job raises this hope, it disappears again. Job feels at odd with God. He feels there is some strife between him and God that he cannot resolve because God is angry with him and that God won't even talk to him. So he believes his only hope is a mediator, some sort of spiritual referee that can understand and represent God's interest and at the same time understand and represent Job's interest. This person will be able to bring reconciliation between God and Job and bind both parties' hands to stick to an agreement. This is what it means in, in verse 33 where it says, who can lay hand on both of us? This that means to bind both people so that they are forced to accept and stick to the agreement. And like I said, just as quickly as this hope is raised in Job's mind, it disappears because he knows that there is no one 
who can force God to do anything. No such person exists. Job could definitely find someone who understands his side of the story. Job could definitely find someone who could represent him in court against God. Job could definitely find someone who can bind him to, to this agreement and force him to, to abide by it. But there's no one who can fully understand God except God. And there's no one who can represent God's interest except God. And there is no one who can bind God's hand and force him to abide by any agreement except God himself. And because there is no such person who exists that can do this for God, Job slips back into despair. Job slips back into despair because his only hope, a mediator between God and man, does not exist. Now, there was no way for Job to know this, but uh, if he could have just waited 2,000 years, okay, okay, just hold on, Job, just a little while longer, okay, uh, if, if he could have just waited 2,000 more years, he would have known that this idea of a mediator between God and man would come to fruition. I want you to look at three New Testament passages of Scripture that although Job did not know that there could be a mediator between God and man, this is exactly what the New Testament says about Jesus Christ. I want us to first look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And Paul specifically says that Jesus is the mediator between God and man. Is everyone there? 1 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For, there is, uh, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Paul says that it is our duty, our responsibility to pray for all government officials and to pray for everyone because God wants everyone to be saved and he also wants us to pray so that we can live quiet and peaceful lives but he says that the reason that we are supposed to pray for these things is because there's only one way to god there are not multiple avenues to know god 
He says there is one God and there is only one mediator between God and men. And it is the man, Christ Jesus. Now, we know that when we see this word Christ, we're talking about the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that has been chosen by God to represent him. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. And we know that Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6, that no one comes to the Father except through him. Because Jesus, the human being who is also God, is the only mediator, the only one able to stand in between God and mankind. Jesus fully understands God. He fully represents God. He is the one who permanently binds God to us in the new covenant through his blood. And at the same time, because he is a man himself, he fully understands us. He can fully represent us before God. And on our behalf, he binds us to God in the new covenant through his blood. He is the one who can lay his hand on God and lay his hand on us and make peace between the two parties. I want you to look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Because some will say, well, Jesus is a man. He's a human being. How or understand how he can represent us. But you just told us that only God can represent himself. So let's look at Ephesians, I mean, Philippians chapter 2. We should all be able to memorize this verse. This is one of our scripture memory verses. <laughs> Starting at verse 5, you should be able to quote it all the way down to verse 12. Um, I'm sorry, to verse 11. But we're, we're going to just look at 5 through 8. It says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, who being in nature God, this is where form means, right? The Greek word means nature, who by his very nature he is God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. A very poor translation of what the Greek phrase um, there means. It, the, 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 the idea behind this did not consider it robbery to be God means that he did not believe that his Godness, his deity, was something to grasp or to hold on to, kind of like Satan. He, he was grasping. He was reaching for something that did not belong to him. Jesus, on the other hand, he possessed it already. He didn't have to chase after it. So he humbled himself, right? He possessed deity already. He was God, but he humbled himself. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. So he was in nature God, but he took on the form, the nature of a bondservant, meaning humanity, and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, 
even the death of the cross. So again, this is, we've talked about this in Bible study, the hypostatic union of Christ, that, that Jesus in his very nature is God, but to that nature he added humanity. And therefore, he had the nature of God and the nature of Christ united in his one person. He is the God-man. And so he could represent God's interest and also represent our interest because he is both God and man. He is the only one who could lay his hand both on his father and on us and bring peace between the two because he is both God and man. Last passage, I want you to look at is 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. Another passage that you should be familiar with. We spent a considerable amount of time in 1 John. 1 John chapter 1, I'll start at verse 5, says, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we lie and, de- um, I'm sorry, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, now the caveat here is is a a Greek condition here. Um, This is a conditional phrase that means you will. Okay, all right. And if anyone sins, and you will. (laughs) Okay. We have an advocate a mediator, a lawyer. <laughs> we, we have the, the word literally, an attorney. We have an attorney, right? Do you need a lawyer? Okay. <laughs> okay. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and he himself is the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Jesus is our mediator. He stands between God the Father and us, and he brings peace, not only at the moment of salvation, but every single time we sin, Jesus is still standing at the right hand of his Father, pleading for us, making intercession for us, as the author of Hebrews says. And, Father, I paid for that. (laughs) I took care of that. Jesus is our mediator. Now, this is what we call the gospel, right? God, our loving creator, he prepared this universe for us to enjoy him and all the things that he has made. 
But our first parents, Adam and Eve, they were not satisfied to live under God's rule. They wanted to decide for themselves what was right. And so they sinned. And when they sinned against God, they plunged every single one of us into sin and rebellion against God. And whereas we were created for fellowship and friendship with God, now we are God's enemies. We are born in sin. We are born hostile to God. We are born hating God and desiring to cast off God's rule. We see in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and plot a vain thing? They desire to, to break off his bonds and cast away his rule. But he who sits in the heavens just laughs. <laughs> right? look, at, look at the silly humans. We, we all desire to cast off God's rule, even those of us who put our trust in Christ every now and then. We like to play with our sin. We want to put God's rule to the side and live according to our own rules. But because God is holy, a holy and righteous king and judge, there must be justice or punishment for our rebellion against him. And this punishment will be an eternal separation from God in a place that we call the lake of fire. That's the bad news. <laughs> in explaining the gospel, you have to always start with the bad news. But the gospel, the word just means good news. What is the good news? The good news is that God still desires a relationship with his creation. God desires to have fellowship with us, but the problem is that there is no way for us as human beings to bridge the gap between ourselves and God. We keep trying to work our way back to God, but it is impossible, as Paul says, by the works of the, uh, by the works of the flesh, or works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight because God requires perfection. You can't get 90 on the test of the Ten Commandments. You have to get 100% every single moment of every single day. And none of us are that good. We are hopelessly sinful, and we continue to live in sin every single day, and we rack up more sin and more punishment and more judgments every single day. So if there is to be peace between God and mankind, God himself has to be the one who acts. This is the gospel. God himself must be the one who acts to bridge this gap because only God can bridge the divide between himself and mankind because only the offended party can forgive sin. And only God is perfect enough to offer a perfect sacrifice for our sin. Now, there's an additional problem that uh, needs to be addressed. God can forgive sin, but there needs to be a perfect sacrifice because his justice demands pen penalties. 
for sin. The problem is we are the ones who sinned. Human beings have sinned. So we have to provide the sacrifice. But we can't provide a perfect sacrifice because we are corrupted by our sin. So what's the solution? The solution is that God came himself. Jesus, the perfect son of God, who is also God himself, became a human being, a perfect human being, and he offered himself as the sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice to his father on our behalf. See, this is why Jesus had to be be both God and man, because only God could effect a perfect sacrifice, but a human being had to make the sacrifice. So Jesus, being perfectly God and perfectly man, could offer himself as the perfect sacrifice, therefore pleasing his Father. And God raised him to life, the resurrection, as proof that he accepted Jesus' perfect sacrifice, and now all who come to Jesus by faith will experience peace with God. That's the gospel. Jesus, the perfect God-man, standing in the gap as the mediator between both God and man, and he brings peace in himself to all those who trust him by faith. Now, again, Job did not have the benefit of being able to see all of this. Job continues in his despair. We even see when he gets to chapter 16, he raises this hope again. If there was just someone who could plead my case before God. And then slipped back into despair because, again, no one like that exists. But every single one of us have a hope that Job did not have. We have a mediator that stands between us and God. When our sin was dividing us from God and there was no way for us to bridge that gap, Jesus stood in the gap so that we could be at peace with his Father. And now that we are in this relationship with God, sometimes we struggle with thinking, like Job, maybe God is mad at me. Maybe God is is not being fair to me. Something must be wrong. I must have did something wrong. Maybe that's why all of these things are happening to me. Paul tells us, I mean, mean, we could literally read the whole book of Romans (laughs) to see Paul's thoughts about uh, about this. I'm just going to read two, two texts that I think are uh, tremendous benefits of having Jesus as our mediator uh, between God and us. And I'll read these quickly, and then I'm going to take my seat. Uh, and, and, and I read this. And even we work out, we're working our way through, uh, through Job, because I know 
that uh, even some of the people in this room, we've wrestled with this. Is, is God mad at me? Is, is God punishing me for something? Is, is God holding my sin over my head and, and just looking for a way to smack me down? In, instead of the hope that we should have because there is a mediator between God and man, we slip into that despair that Job experienced. Listen to what Paul says. He says, Romans chapter 5, he says, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. All he's saying is that if we were God's enemies, and he saved us and reconciled us to himself, now that we are his children, wouldn't he do much more for us now that we are, are have his life? Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Another very familiar passage, passage for us still, again, talks about suffering and tribulation. Romans 8, and I'm going to start at verse 18 so that you can see he's talking about suffering. I probably won't read all of these verses. I'll probably just read a couple and then skip down to like verse 26. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Your suffering, right? That's what he addresses in these uh, verse 12 down to this verse. You're suffering, you're in pain. He goes on to talk about how even the whole earth is groaning because of our sin. But verse 26, likewise, the spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, he who searches the hearts knows th what the mind of the spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, 
to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now, that's not in this life. That, 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 oh, yeah, he's going to give me a BMW. Jesus didn't have a BMW. Just let you, just let you know that. <laughs> okay? All right. I know some. Oh, but he had a boat. No, he didn't. No. Peter's family had a boat. Okay. Jesus did not have a boat. I even heard recently someone say, but he rode around on the most technologically advanced uh, things of his day. I'm like, a donkey? (laughs) I don't get it. I don't get it. But okay. How shall he not with him freely give us all things? What shall, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword Right, the, the assumption is that you're answering no to all of those answers. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus is our mediator. He has brought peace between us and his father, those of us who put our trust in him. God is not mad at you. Jesus brought peace because he is the perfect God-man, the mediator, who is able to bring God to the table, bring you to the table, and he did that through his blood. He is the satisfaction for our sin. His father is no longer mad at us. We are at peace. So whenever you start to doubt if God is being unfair, if you ever start to doubt that God might be punishing you because he's mad with you, if you start to think that that God must be at a distance from me because he's not speaking to me, we have to keep remembering that nothing will separate us from the love of God because Jesus brought us peace through his blood. Jesus, the perfect God-man, 
He is the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice that we come to celebrate. <laughs> that guarantees that no matter what we face in life, no matter what we go through in life, it is not because God is trying to get back at us. Because God proved for all times his love when he sent his son to the cross for us. We are at peace. Father, we thank you today for allowing us an opportunity to, to peek into the heart and mind of Job. Job does not have the benefit of seeing the entire Bible, all the scripture, and realizing that there was a mediator, but his time had not yet come. But Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, that in the fullness of time, you came, born of a woman, born under the law, so that you could redeem those who were under the law. And now we can look back in hindsight and see that there is a mediator. There was a mediator who could stand between God and man and bring peace. We thank you, Jesus, that although we could not pay the cost, you were able to pay it and you did. You gave your perfect life your holy life for our sin, our unrighteousness. And your sacrifice was, was so perfect, it satisfied the Father for all time. As the author of Hebrews said, you made a sacrifice once for all time, and you are now seated at the right hand of the Father, at the place of victory. Lord, I pray that every single time we are tempted because of our suffering and our pain or our circumstances to doubt your love, we will look at the cross. We will look to our mediator. Every time our suffering and our pain tempts us to think that you are not righteous or you are not fair, I pray that you will help us to look to the cross, help us to look to our mediator. Because it's on the cross, through the death of our mediator, that you have proven yourself for all time to be on our side. Lord, I pray that in the times that we do suffer and have pain, and, and for whatever reason you don't speak to us, you don't let us know what's going on, I pray that you would help us to trust you. Help us to know that, as we've seen in these two passages of Scripture in Romans, that if you loved us enough to reconcile us when we were your enemies, that now that we are your children, you will much more freely give us all things. Help us to endure the tests and trials that come, knowing that you have something in mind. Help us to persevere and to endure as we have I learned through the book of James, knowing that when we have passed the test, we will be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So we thank you for all things, even our suffering, even our pain, because we know that you will work all things for our good and for your glory. 
It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray and ask these things. Amen. Amen. Amen.